It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the 100th edition of the Masters in Business podcast here on Bloomberg Radio. I am so thrilled and excited uh, to have hit this milestone. If you would have told me when we began what really started as a Skunk Works project uh, on the down low. A uh, quick digression as to how this podcast came about. Tim O'Brien, who runs Bloomberg View and Bloomberg Gadfly, he's the one who set it up, uh, was recruiting me to uh, come right from Bloomberg. And I said, listen, you guys have a website. I have a website. Why do I want to publish for, for you guys instead of on my own site? And he said, well, look at this fantastic playground that we have here at Bloomberg. Look at the technology, the facilities. I have to tell you, that was really a very persuasive argument. The Bloomberg building, if you've never been, is it's mind-blowing. It, it is a purpose-built technology and media high-rise in, in the middle of Midtown. It, it's really an amazing, amazing place. And if there's any way you could find... Uh, the opportunity to come here professionally, you should. It, it's pretty awesome. And when Tim was showing me around the facilities, I noticed all these super cool um, radio booths and studios. Now, I've been to the Bloomberg building numerous times before. I've been on the radio here. I've been on the uh, Bloomberg TV set. I've been here for conferences. So I'm somewhat familiar with the space. But when you're looking at it, not as just a guest who's blowing in and out in order to do a television show, but as a facility that someone says, hey, you have access to all all of these really cool toys, you see it from a slightly different perspective. And so when we started chit-chatting about what we could actually do with these facilities, uh, I started to get all sorts of interesting, interesting ideas. The first of which was, I would love to do a podcast and actually talk to some of the most intelligent and influential and important people in the industry, in business and finance on Wall Street. Uh, we kicked a few ideas around. Someone had suggested, how about a television show? I said, no, go get Joe Wiesenthal to do that. I, I don't want to do TV. I, I, I don't want to wear a suit and tie every day. I don't want to shave. I don't want to have to go on a diet. Um, I've dropped about 20 pounds, but to do TV, I would have to drop another 20 and, and that would be a lot of work. Uh, so when they said, what do you want to do? My answer was, I want to sit with these people and have an adult conversation about important things. Well, uh, podcast, what do you mean? 
And the elevator pitch was Mark Marin's WTF meets Charlie Rose. But I went back and looked at my notes, and my notes said a podcast version of Jack Schwager's Market Wizards. And uh, that was really the motivation for the show. And so who better to do our 100th podcast than the man, the legend himself, Jack Schwager. He is the author of numerous Market Wizards books. The first one is Market Wizards. The second one is New Market Wizards. The third one is Hedge Fund Wizards. Uh, plus a number of of different books on options and trading and futures and you know he he has been a trader his whole career and and the writing and editing started as a sort of side project but obviously it it blew up on its own. Um, a quick another digression about Jack and I. So I don't know I, I I'm a newbie in the industry I'm around for less than ten years. The first book anybody gives me. Um, to read when I'm studying for my Series 7 100 years ago uh, was Market Wizards, and I just devoured it, and I was fascinated by the fact that all these different traders and, and fund managers in all these different fields, some were commodities, some were, were equities, some were bonds, some were uh, more complex products, some were really simple strategies. There was a theme that ran through all of these interviews and so not only did I devour the first book, but I, I reread it every five years. I find it to be uh, absolutely fascinating. And the second time I read it, I want to say that was 99 or 2000 or something like that, I decided to do something I almost never do, which is write a review on Amazon.com for the book. And, and you'll see, other than whining about you know a poorly made product, I almost never do book reviews. Uh, I got stuff to do. I would rather read books than write book reviews. So I happened to be so moved by Market Wizards that I wrote a review of it. This was, I don't know, a one, oh three, something like that. And posted on Amazon, completely forget about it. Fast forward to episode, I don't know, 15, 25, something like that. And Jack Schwager is one of our early guests. He was nice enough to come on. And he not only reminds me that I wrote a review of Market Wizards for Amazon, but yeah, Amazon does this sort of crowdsourcing thing where you could thumbs up or thumbs down a review, and it turned out that the readers of the Amazon page on Market Wizards had made that the top review of Market Wizards. Go to Amazon, click positive reviews. It's the first one. Jack says it's it's been the first one for over a decade who knew? Just one of those funny little ironies 15 years ago, I wrote a review of a book that I thought was really, really interesting and important. And now in 2016, it turns out that our 100th guest on Bloomberg Radio's Masters in Business show and podcast is the same gentleman, Jack Schwager. So with tremendous amount of excitement, I am thrilled to present our 100th podcast. Here he is, author and trader, Jack Schwager. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a special guest today who is, should be very well known if you are an investor or trader and like to read books about the craft. 
His name is Jack Schwager, and I have to tell you, the first book I ever received in the industry when I began was Market Wizards. I make it a point to reread it every five years or so. There are now three versions. There's Market Wizards, New Market Wizards, and Hedge Fund Wizards, as well as an audio book of... Actually, all, all of them are... All three are now all, available all, all on audio. audio books. Um, Jack Schwager, welcome yeah. to Bloomberg. Oh, thank you, Barry. Good to be here again. So so I really didn't give your your background and introduction uh, enough of a play-up. You're, you're, in addition to being an author, you're a, a trader. You've written a number of books on technical trading and futures trading along those lines, as well as a, a, an entrepreneur. I, I cannot underestimate, I cannot underemphasize how influential Market Wizards was. When, when did the first book the come first, out? The first Market Wizards came out in 1989. I, and, and how many copies has that, uh, you and know, how many printings? Came out, well, they, first of all, it's been translated in, in, in so many languages, I mean, weird language. I mean, languages I wouldn't only expect, like Turkish and Croatian and uh, Vietnamese and whatever, you know. So, uh, and you have no idea. You, they sell these books, uh, they make a, a contract, and you have no idea what it sells overseas. Sure. So, and and the chi in China, there's like, there's two official language versions, not to count the bootleg versions. Right. But, That's true uh, of everything in yeah, China. Yeah, but <laughs> absolutely. When, whenever someone talks about China, there should be uh, implied uh, in parentheses yeah. not to count the bootleg versions. <laughs> that's, that, that's a given. So, in other words, the, but is the it, book I, is, I would guess I would guess between all the, you know all the books I've written globally, I'd say probably a couple of million were sold. Yeah, that, that's huge. And I, I, for those people who may not be familiar with Market Wizards, the premise of the book is essentially. Uh, let's speak to some some very successful investors and traders and see how they do and what their secret sauce is. And what's fascinating, in the book, you spoke to people who are commodities traders, bond traders, equity traders, currency traders, and there were some really consistent themes, no matter what these people were doing, whether whether they were long-term investors or, or the shortest of short-term traders, certain themes came out in the book over and over again. Right, and and that was what I was trying to do. I was trying, what is the secret sauce? What separates this group uh, of extremely successful? Uber successful. I yeah, mean, right. just, yeah. just off the charts. Yeah, and some of them, are, I mean, just extraordinary. And, and 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 the people I've interviewed included sort of the most famous you know, uh, traders of, uh, of We're going to go into the specifics about some of them uh, okay, in sure. a few minutes. But so, so as far as the the, 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 the lessons, I mean, there, there are tons of them, and I probably in the later books when I did summaries, uh, I might have had like you know forty points, uh, forty points, and and if you had all, or if you had add all the books, all like all the common denominators, I wouldn't be surprised if it got close to a hundred. So it's kind of hard to just say which ones, but what, the 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 fact that they were radically different from each other was maybe one of the most important common denominators because what it spoke to is they each found their own way. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people, uh, you know, will, will ask me or write me, you know, say, What traders should I follow? That's right. What traders should I follow? Or who's the best trader, you know? And, and you know, to me, that, that, has no, that question has no answer, and the question actually makes no sense. It makes no more sense than somebody calling me and asking me, I've got to go buy a suit. What size should I get? And I've never seen the person. I mean, <laughs> it's as relevant a question as that. So th these people found what worked for them, and it, it was always different. So let's talk about a couple of themes, though, that run through all the traders. Let, let's start with discipline, yeah. probably the single most important lesson, uh, at least that I took. 
What was yeah, the general take on on being a disciplined person? The uh, when I asked I asked that question to a lot. You know, some questions I uh, I tried to do the, com- the the interviews in conversational format. Mm-hmm. You know, much you like you you do, right? So well, we'll, we'll discuss. <laughs> you were the inspiration for the show. Uh, That's so, absolutely true. And you know, don't start. I would have like questions sort of back up. You know, but I'd like talk and talk. You know, and sometimes it go on. You know, we get two days of conversation sometimes, and only at the end would I like look. Hey, did I miss anything? And usually nothing. You know, usually we picked mm-hmm. up everything. So, um, uh, I got off a tangent. <laughs> I, I was got on, on that. On the original question was on discipline. Discipline, right? So, uh, one question I asked, did ask everybody, or uh, just about, is is what what separates you? You know, what differentiates you? What what why are you different? And and discipline was the single most answered. You know, answer to that. That question. was the response. That was the most common answer to that question was uh, discipline. Uh, now, when let's let's. Dig in a little bit. When they say they're disciplined, are they referring to keeping their emotions in check? Are they referring to I have a methodology and I find, follow it no matter what? What did they mean? And and those two are not separate. Um, yeah, but they mean primarily I've got a methodology and I'm not going to stray from it. And I know you, you're a trader and I'm a, I'm a trader. And but anybody's traded knows this that if you if you got an approach that sort of works well, and and. To be clear, no approach work. No, no approach works any great amount of time. Right, it's everything a, falls in and out of phase. Everything just a, cycles. It's just a question of probabilities. But if you've got an approach that over time, probabilities are in your favor, and you make more money than you lose, and you keep control. If you've got that pro- approach, and you've got rules or trades that you do, uh, and you're losing some of them, that's fine because you're going to lose on a certain percentage. But when you do stuff that is counter to what you're supposed to do, like, well, I got, I got this is how I get into a trade. And then you look at the market. Gee, you know, let's take, you know, we got Brexit going on here, you know, and you got this market crashing. Boy, this must be really oversold. It's not really part of my trade, but I'll take a flyer. Right. You know, the pound's down 18 cents, you know, it, that's probably good for a bounce. I'll buy it. Those type of trades. So that's breaking discipline. That's not part of your plan. That's not right. part of your approach. Unless your plan is Unless let me you, randomly yeah. follow the headline <laughs> of the news and chase everything. Well, <laughs> those people don't stay in business very yeah. long, do they? Well, but, or, or the, this is this is actually going. My, my example was just the opposite, sort of like you, you're going to you're going to try to pick the bottom and you know you're going to try to catch the falling knife, so to speak. Um, and and some people could that could be that could be in a strategy. In fact, catching a falling knife. Uh, I've I've interviewed traders who who do trade like that. Uh, but you have to have. Um, but then you know where you're getting out. You know you you think it's going to hold here, and if it doesn't, you're out. So that's, but just to blindly take a, a trade that's not part of your your approach, that's where that would be breaking discipline. Or more more important, even more important, is is not getting in. And we we and I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir when I talk to you. But you know all of this stuff, and this is, I know you've got the exact same view. Getting in is the least important part. Getting out is what you got to worry about, and that's what people don't worry about. I, I used to jokingly sell. There's a million books on what to buy, but other than Justin Mammoth's What to Sell, nothing. Right? Yeah, exactly. On, yeah. Hey, here's your exit. Right. Exactly. And, and that. And that's comes where right the discipline, discipline. And that's yeah. where the discipline comes in. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So let me back up and talk a little bit about you, because people may not be familiar with with your background. So. How did you find your way to finance? Oh, uh, purely accidentally. Uh, I I graduated, um, you know, from from an Ivy League school with a which mas- where did uh, you go to school? Brown. I went to Brown mm-hmm. uh, with a master's in economics, and I kind of expected sort of day after graduation, I'd sort of stick my head out and I'd have five offers, you know, and all that. Right. And and I I didn't know how to look for a job in my first May. I mean, I had the, the temporary employment, but the first real job I was looking for. So I went to to employment agencies and. 
I guess I, they probably haven't changed <laughs> since that time. Yeah, they, they don't exist anymore. Yeah, okay, that's, that's whatever. How yeah, all right. So, uh, but they weren't very effective. You know, and like a two weeks, I didn't. You know, I didn't hear back anything. So I got frustrated. So I just uh, at the time, New York, the New York Times had a help, uh, not a help wanted, but but position wanted uh, section. And so for about six. 16- so as a job seeker, yeah, you could as a job post seeker. So like, I think it cost me like. Fourteen dollars or fifteen dollars. I put a, a two-line ad in and something along the line. Uh, you know, masters in in economics, minor in math, looking for an analytical job. Pretty much that was you know that was it. And I had about I don't know sixteen, seventeen responses to that. Really, uh, all but one, all but one were come ons. In other words, the the they people to sell you something. They want you to <laughs> they want you exactly. They want you to buy. It was like these chain sell. You know, you right. They'll sell you uh, two thousand dollars worth of soap bubbles, and you go find other people to sell it. That right. type of thing. I, w- I went to one of these uh, thinking I was going to a, a meeting of, of the company, and uh, that it was a manager. I said, "Well, I say I asked even on the phone. This is not a sales. He said, oh, well, we have sales, but this is." And I'm expecting to meet with this group at a you know at a at their quarterly meeting or whatever. And I walk in and there's like this huge auditorium and there's like a display in the front and then and they have run a film with I think it was Sebastian Cabot telling you know telling how great this product and then they have a guy who some sort of chemist who fell off a roof supposedly and while he was in the hospital was thinking how he can make his life his wife's job easier and sort of came up with this miracle cleaning product. And uh, anyway, and this is, and then they have a guy come out and tell you how he drives a Porsche and uh, makes uh, you know how you can make ten thousand dollars in your spare time. Really, literally, this was it. Uh, so I went to one of these, obviously, and then any calls I got thereafter. I, but there was one legitimate call, mm-hmm. and that legitimate call, as fate would have it, was a research analyst position that was being vacated by Michael Marcus. Michael Marcus, who ultimately uh, who was leaving to become a trader. Mm-hmm. And um, he he ultimately became an incredible trader. We can talk more about him later if you want. But he he and I met as he was leaving and I was going in, and sort of he still was in New York for a while, and we would get together for lunches. You know, every uh, what firm of weeks. was this? Uh, well, this was a, a firm called uh, at the time it was called the Reynolds Securities, which mm-hmm. then merged into Dean Witter Reynolds and. Went into you know multiple. I, I don't even know. Ultimately, it became UBS well, or who did it? I don't end know up where up? they ultimately ended up. I didn't stay. I stayed for two years. Mm-hmm. At, you know, I was I started out like making two thousand dollars less than my secretary, right? Um, <clears throat> who I shared with the research director, and uh, was doing. I and another analyst were doing really almost all the work. Um, and then after two years, I just stuck. And I was writing for for the pre- predecessor. Now it's called Martin. Trading, and then before that it was called Futures, and before that mm-hmm. it was originally called Commodities Magazine. I remember all, th- all those. Uh... That's how I started writing. Is I started writing a col- you know column. When I came so, so two years. I had a little bit of a reputation. I went. I stuck my head out. You know, instantaneously uh, got a job. Uh, you know, as a research director, triple my salary, triple that salary, and so right. I, so I left at that. So I, I you know I, I didn't uh, stay at Reynolds too long. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jack Schwager. He is the author of the famous Market Wizard series of books, as well as being a trader and entrepreneur. Um, let's talk a little bit about the role of luck and skill with traders. And, and, and I want to ask what is a deceptively simple question. How difficult is trading as a profession? Uh, it, as a as to a profession where you can actually earn a living, yes. yeah, extremely extremely difficult. And I 
don't think most people are cut out for it. In fact, I don't think I'm cut out for it. Oh, really? I know. I've never wanted to... Uh, if I were really good, then I maybe would have entertained the idea of being a full-time trader. But I never was good enough. You know, uh, being good enough to be net profitable in, in the markets is very, very different from being good enough to your living coming from that. You're, you know, you're 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 paying for right. your, your expenses. So I never had that particular confidence that I was I was good enough. And the only reason I'm even profitable as a trader. Uh, is just because I've I've just spoken to so many people and I've had so much experience. I actually, as a, my my natural instincts, uh, uh, are pretty poorly attuned for trading. Uh, I, I think most people's yeah. Are. Well, actually, most people's are, and I'm no exception. And in fact, some of the traits that are important for good trading, which something you asked before, what a one that one that comes up all the time is patience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody like Jim Rogers has a great line. He says, I. I don't do anything until there's there's money lying in a corner of the floor, and all I have to do is go and pick it up. Right. So yeah, yeah, patience just to wait for something that's like a real setup, you know, a real fat pitch, um, and and similarly to stay with a position. You know, the, the 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 famous line from Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, which I like to I'll paraphrase, but it, I think it was I mean, it might be the exact quote. He said it was never. Uh, and for, the, for those listeners who don't know the book, it's it's uh, a book Edward uh, Lefavre. Le, Lefavre's book about Jesse Livermore. Although Livermore is never identified, everybody knows it's Livermore. And where the protagonist says, uh, talking about what his success was due to, he says it was never my thinking that made the money; it was my sitting. Got that? My sitting. So he said, "Hey, I'm not so smart. It's just I was able to stay and stay and stay with a position I was working out." So those that all speaks to patience and. It's a trait that I, my wife is listening to this recording in the next room, and she probably would nod her head when I say, you don't want to be with me in the same car during a traffic jam. I am not a patient person. That's that. That's interesting. There's a wonderful book, you know, given all the wonderful books on behavioral economics and, and how people's cognitive issues are, are so very suspect, Frank Portnoy, who's probably best known for writing the book Infectious Greed, wrote a book a few years ago called Wait. Um, and it's a fascinating look at the psychology behind that exact thing, behind patience. And it really is a trait that can be learned. It's so important for, for both traders and investors. Uh, just look, you mentioned Brexit and the crazy market. You know, I'm pretty confident that 20 years from now, when we look back, this is going to be a blip that we will have forgotten, right. just like Ebola was forgotten, just like yep. you know Zika, I suspect, is the next one that makes huge headlines. And then two years later, it's like, oh, whatever happened to, you know, whatever happened to the chicken flu? Wasn't that a big thing that was coming <laughs> along? And so anyway, um, let, so let's talk a little bit about luck. How can somebody who's had a good run of trades identify the difference between trades that are based on skill and just getting lucky in their outcome. Right. You can never identify any particular group of trades, whether you're just lucky or skillful. And and, and there's always luck involved. Uh, But luck is, is the the longer you go, the less luck will win out. In other words, you can can have a streak, you can have a hot streak for a while, and that could last for days, weeks, it's maybe even months. Months, right? But that's not going to go on for Forever, years. Forever, right? Years. Right. So um, eventually, the, skill wins. Yeah, out. and and so if you're kind of almost you know, most years, year in, year out, you're you're kind of that profitable. You never put your account into real danger by allowing uh, a deep drawdown, and, and and so if if you're doing that, that's probably skill then, because 
luck alone, unless, unless, I should make a proviso, you can have mar- bull markets go on for multiple sure. years. So if your approach is just to to just go long uh, and stay long, and it's and you're making and you're doing well, and it's in a bull market. All you can assume is you've been long during a bull market. You have no idea what's going to happen when you have a bear market. So, well, but there is some skill to being on the right side of well, the trade. Well, it's fine, right? but if you've only been on one side in your trading, you know, people start trading, they start trading. Yeah, you know, how many people thought they were geniuses? They started trading in the 1990s, right? Yeah, right? So, uh, and they, you know, but they continue trading through 2000 and 2001, thinking it was going to be the same thing. And so, yeah, they may have doubled their money, uh, tripled their money, but then. One ninety percent drawdown takes care of all of that. That that's the famous Buffett quote: "Is when the tide goes out, we find out who's been swimming naked." Yeah, right. And so the, that that no doubt about that. You go through a full cycle, you find out if you actually yeah. Are so that's that's the only lucky. proof. You can't tell if anybody is good or not uh, without uh, you know without really seeing them through through a bare, bare phase. And actually, just to criticize myself here, um, there was one. I have another. I have a fourth market was a book called Stock Market Wizards. Uh, which I wrote uh, right at the tail. It was right at the turn of you know night, late '99, so really at the end of the bull market. Um, and and I, the specific to make the book different from the other market was the books. I took the theme just stock markets. So I was interviewing only stock traders. So by <laughs> by definition, when I was doing the book, I was doing a book of only stock traders. Right after a long, long and the bull market was just the nineties. Bull market, right? 82, 82, 82 yep. right? We both know that. So. Uh, and but I tried. I thought I was taking people who you know also had the control. You know who would who would do okay uh, in a bear market and uh, who would survive. But it turned out that yeah, some of them did, uh, but but <laughs> quite a few didn't. And so, so we uh, never saw that book. No, that book is out. The yeah. book is out. Uh, and, and some of the guy, you know, there are some there are some famous people in there like D. Shaw and oh uh, sure and well controversial one Stevie Cohn, but. Regardless of what, guy's got an amazing yeah. Track record regardless, over a long of, you of time. know, my, my thing about Stevie Cohen, I I don't know anything more than anybody else knows. I read in the press and all of that. Uh, I know if they if, if there was anything really obvious, uh, they would have certainly have loved to nail him, and they never yeah. did. So, um, but if people want to argue that he made, so, you know, he made insider trades, I don't, I I don't know, I don't. Nobody. Now knows, the question right? with him but, was: Was there a lack of supervision over the people? Yeah. Well, that's 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 the right question, right? That, right. But, but so. But even if you want it, what I'm saying is, even if people want to say, "Hey, you know, he these people work for him. He would have known. He was so." But he, this is a guy who does like, God, thirty thousand trades a year. Who knows right. what? He's half the volume of, and, of yeah, Seth. And, 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 and you look at his record. You could cut his record in half, and you still have one of the best records of all time. Right. So yeah. You know, so what if a few if a few trades? It doesn't make it. It doesn't he, take away an, from him. He is an incredible trader. No matter what anybody says. So let me ask you one question that I've always found fascinating, and this has to be right in your uh, in your sweet spot. When you talk about skill and luck and psychology, we all know traders who are like this. They take credit for all the winning trades, but there's always an excuse. They're always casting blame on any of the losses. What, why? What's that about? That's well, actually, the trade if a trader does that. I'll take. I'll give you better than even. I'll give you two to one odds. They're gonna. They're gonna. They're gonna. They're gonna fail. They're gonna blow up. They're gonna blow. They. They're gonna fail. Anybody. And that's when I talk about trades. I mean, any decent trader will admit that it's his, you know, or her fault. Who uh, pulled the trigger? Whose fingers were on right. the keyboard? Right. And, and and the bad luck comes into it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I get. Oh, the other, the one for last week. I. Uh, it was like a cocoa trade. 
and uh, I kind of pick my and one of my one of my types of trades is I I, I like to buy markets um, counter trend mm-hmm. uh, at spots where I think that they'll they'll be sold sold out or bought out or whatever. In other and, words, you have a good risk reward. Either and you're I put a stop out quickly, and, or you get a bounce the other exactly. way. Exactly. And so my my entry my order rests there, and I have a stop that rests there. So one morning, I you know I wake up and I look at the trades, and boy, I'm in and out of the cocoa trade. Um, and this was the one day it was like bizarre. It, it was um, the you know the the, the market that day, I didn't even know if there was any news, but it traded like about twenty times the range it normally trades. And I remember that one day, and it spiked down in one minute. I don't even know if there was any news. It spiked down a few hundred points in one minute. My I, so here I, I get in, which would have been I think a great entry, but then like in within one minute's time, I you know, within seconds, it like ticks down sort of like three ticks. You know, I had two stops, one. You know, one is it like right almost at a low, one ten, but like a second apart or whatever, and then it goes right back up again. Mm-hmm. So, sure, you could say that's bad luck, and maybe you know it, 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 that trade I think was bad luck, but that doesn't make a difference. The point is, over time, uh, it shouldn't make any difference because I'll have good luck too. You know, just the bad ones you really notice, the good ones you figure, the good ones you're smart on, the bad ones are bad luck, right? In, so that's in, it. In the old days, I would have blamed the specialist for robbing me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we could do that. Yeah. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jack Schwager. He is the author of the Market Wizards series of books, as well as a number of books on futures trading and technical trading. Uh, he also has been a, a trader for, for several decades. You know, the last time you were visiting us, you were just in the process of launching a, co- a company called Fundseeder, and you're using some technology to try to identify the new emerging uh, traders that are coming up through the ranks. Tell us a little bit about about how this works. Sure. So the concept of, of Fundseeder is globally now, not just the U.S. or industrialized nations. There are, there are just who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of traders now most of them are not going to be any good, <laughs> but you don't need. You only need a tiny fraction of one percent that are good, and that's a realistic expectation. But they'll never, they'll never be discovered. They might be in countries where there's no, no real place for invest. You know, no institutional are, infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah, you got them. people. Let's say you got a mathematician in Eastern Europe. Let's say right comes up with a great algorithm making money in the markets. Doesn't have much money to trade. Nobody will discover him. Nobody will speak to him. So, you know, our idea was create a central spot on the web where traders could go get their track records verified on daily data and by verified verified by because the track records and numbers come not from the traders but they come directly by linking their account from their from custodians the, yeah so from the broker so so we're getting downloads direct well, of course with the traders authorization we're getting mm-hmm. downloads of the daily results so so let me let me stop you right there i know that when guys are launching hedge funds or any sort of proprietary trading operation, the first question that gets asked is, show me your audited returns. Uh, This really is a way to say, without spending tens of thousands of dollars on audits and without going through the whole process, uh, which could be 30 or 50 or $100,000 to tee up a fund, this at least gives you a way to rank different traders on their at least recent performance. Yeah, or actually, as a, depending on what broker, it could be their entire performance. Uh, but it's not meant as a replacement for the audit, but it is meant as getting real numbers we believe are probably quite true. It's an initial screen. Yeah, it's then. an initial screening, right. So before this, how, how would any of these people ever 
be found they or wouldn't. seen. They wouldn't. I the, mean, they wouldn't. And that's why, I mean, yeah, I think what is it like something like 680 uh, plus billion dollar funds uh, control sort of 88% of the, I think mean, the number is like 88% of the- I just saw that the, data the, not right? too long ago. There was a pre, I think it's a, a pre, very fat pre- head, long the, tail distribution. Yeah, I mean, it's just super, super, and it gets more and more concentrated, it seems, over the years. So we live in a world where- Big money, all the institutional money goes to the same big traders, and everybody else is sort of left out of it. Robert Frank calls this the winner-take-all society. Yeah. And uh, it's true about movies. It's true about- you know, there's a handful of superstar musicians, and then everybody. And else we're is trying in to the swim French. in the other direction. Right. Our our thought is, there's a lot of talent out there that just has no way of getting found. If we provide a venue where they can be found, discovered, then we can utilize that database to uh, either introduce them to investors. So, through. so that on one side is Fundseeder Technology. That's yeah. So that's, which is how you you're screening for these people. Well, yeah, and what what, what Fundseeder Technology, the main technology there is, it's a platform for traders. Traders, first of all, it's linked. You know, traders can get their track records linked through the broker and get them verified daily record. But then it does nice, neat stuff, which uh, like I as a trader would love to see a daily equity curve. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. something very difficult to get. I don't know if any brokers that have daily equity curves. And and I- Define I, what that is. Because I'm when I think hear oh, curve, I'm thinking yield curve. No, no. So your equity day by day, you know, you um, take simply, you try to start off 100,000, you make 5,000, you got 105, you lose seven, you got 98. That track record over time, uh, what does it look like? You know, so uh, hopefully so, up and to the right, right? But, but I mean, what are not, drawdowns? When right. when are you starting to deviate from your normal pattern? What, what does it look like over time? What are the what are the average? What are the we have all sorts of analytics on that. So, but just to solve the basic equity curve, just to be able to see how your equity is fluctuating over time itself is is a really good important thing to have. So that that's the find these obscure and unknown. That's what they managers. get. Well, that's what they create, and then they can do all sorts of analytics. They can create underwater curves, all sorts of stats, all sorts of uh, studies, like what happens. Like you could apply moving averages, let's cross over moving average to your equity curve and say, what would have happened if every time there was a the 10 and 40 moving average crossed down, I stopped trading and I didn't start until it crossed up? Questions like that. So that, that stuff is there and it's free. So and let's take the flip side of this. Flip, what, yeah. is, what is fund seed investor? Okay. So we can't do any investment on that for compliance reasons, all that. You know, So we have a separate company called Fund Seeder Investments which will use the database created on Funseeder Technologies, which is the Funseeder.com site is Funseeder Technologies, mm-hmm. and will find the you know by ranking, by searching, we got search filters and all that, we'll find the best traders. Those traders we, that we believe have uh, potential, we may have uh, investors who are looking for certain types of traders, we can play the introductory role. Or one of our plans is hopefully by next year we'll have an emerging manager fund and so we'll take a bunch of these guys and uh, gals put and put fund. them into one fund and uh, and also create a fund, and this is important, our our plan right now is to create a fund that also is much fairer to investors because as you, you being part of this, this, this industry know, it's, you know, it's heads, heads I win, tails you lose, you know. Uh, Two and hey, 20, no, the giant drag on I mean, on it's like else. you can't, the trader, no matter what happens, always has a free call. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is author and trader Jack Schwager, uh, author of the famous Market Wizards series of books. So let, let's go back to those three books uh, or four books. And I wanted to ask... You mentioned the idea came to you because you really just wanted to chat with some traders and maybe maybe learn some stuff. Um, the response had to be really tremendous. 
Were you surprised at how well received the uh, books became? Yes, yes, and but it always sounds a little bit, I don't know, conceited. What I, I did when I wrote the book, uh, and I mentioned like reminiscences of a stock operator originally, right? Um, I did, I did have a goal of doing a modern day version, although my format's totally different. But I did either, the thing I had in mind is I was reading reminiscences, which I thought was the best book on trading that I ever, you know, read. Um, I was reading it 65 years after its publication date, right. and it was still totally relevant, even right. though the market still today. Yeah, yeah, that is today too, right? So my goal was uh, to do a book that, hopefully, in 65 years from then, you know, people would still be reading because it's still totally relevant. So that was my goal. Uh, the fact you, that it, yeah, you had to feel like as you were working your way through it, and and re-editing it and rereading it. You know, you you had to be. Hey, this stuff is pretty. I good. thought, well, yeah, and 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 part that the editing part is interesting, and you maybe appreciate it. Um, you know, people sometimes think, hey, you know, one comment I get is, boy, you know, you're you're a great interview, you know, you're a great interviewer, you know, you really ask great questions, you're really, you know, and I say, no, I'm I'm not a great interviewer. I'm, what I'm what I am is I'm a really great editor because I because <laughs> I got like you know I have like ten or twenty times the material I actually use for the book, and not only that. Um, you know, a lot of times you have these, as you know, you get conversations, people go off on tangents, and it, it works well in this type of format, right? It's okay, you don't notice it, because that's the way we speak. But in a written in a written format, if you, if I did verbatim of what everybody said, choppy, it would sound illiterate, and, confusing, boring, uh -huh. it, you know. So my goal, and I, you know, journalist, uh, I guess a journalist's goal is to be exactly word for word accurate. My goal was to be as accurate to the truth that I could. So if I if a trader was like going somewhere, it didn't finish the point. Right. And I knew what he was going to make the point. I would finish the point. But of course, the traders I get let the traders read the end product, and they always so thought, they actually reviewed and said, "Hey, yeah, well, just they make always sure thought, I didn't put words." Well, in they your never mouth. even knew I changed. I mean, they added things. You know, they, they what I was trying to do was get as close to what they were trying to say in a most readable form, throwing out the. The stuff that was didn't have anything to say and that was boring and and keeping the the, the best parts and and reshuffling it so it flowed uh -huh. so you don't discuss the same thing in eighteen different spots and but it was all it was it was a combination of trying to be as true as possible to what they were communicating while making it as readable as possible so trying to really serve both purposes and that was that was what I was trying to do and nobody ever thought that I had changed I don't think they ever realized that. They they probably thought it was verbatim because of what I, that's what I was trying to do. It was pretty close to yeah. what the it, it was what they hoped verbatim. Well, yeah, yeah. So so over the course of the four Market Wizards books, did you notice anything that had changed in the world in in the markets, or was it the focus just simply in a different aspect of of the well, investing the world, world? The world, the markets have changed. For one thing, I had like people who had floor trading experience and some of the most colorful stories and oh, in sure. Market Wizards come. You know, like Paul Tudor Jones with the trade that almost blew him out of the business. You know, mm -hmm. where we he puts on a trade way too large, and and it's in a cotton pit, and and the the, the broker who almost kills himself trying to get to to, to hit the opposite side of the order, uh, it has the is for, is the broker for the merchant that owns all the deliverable supply, and Paul knows he's dead in the water, and he, he really almost completely wiped out on that trade. But stories like that, those couldn't happen anymore because the floors don't exist anymore. So right. those things change, but but the the realities and what makes trading successful or not successful, those things haven't. So last question before we get into some of the specific trades that are so fascinating. Um, uh, it, it has to be just tremendously gratifying to see how successful the books have come. Do you, do you ever stop and say, 
I never in a million years expected this to happen. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't think that far. Uh, I like I say, the fact that the original market was as now is going on. I don't know twenty. Uh, it's, it's not anniversary. Yeah, well, it's past twenty fifth. It's uh, well, so eight, yeah, in two years. Well, it'll be twenty twenty eight now. So like twenty eight mm-hmm. years. Uh, since I wrote it, so um, so that is really was like the goal I was trying to to reach. Uh, am I surprised? I I guess, I don't know. Maybe I was maybe I was uh, didn't realize how difficult how difficult that should be. But it uh, it was what I was trying to achieve. Um, so l- let's talk about a few specific traders who I find to be uh, fascinating. Um, Ed, C- I want to pronounce his name. Sakota. Right. Sakota. Sakota. So he says he doesn't tr- publish his track record, but he was remo- rumored to have started. With five thousand dollars and turned it into tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. So, so here's the thing with Sakota, um, and, and this is the thing I try to verify people as much as I can in any ways you can. But sometimes you're dealing with people that are just private, not managing other people's money. That you're lucky to get them to interview. Now, Sakota, uh, his name came up because I didn't know who he was. Uh, I had interviewed Michael Marcus, who I knew personally. You mentioned Marcus and, earlier. And just so people have context, Michael, Mar- we're talking about a guy. That Commodities Corp, which used to be a different type of firm, but they were like a prop trading firm of mm-hmm. futures traders, uh, they gave Michael a thirty thousand dollar account, and about a dozen years later, that, that account was worth eighty million, and that was with them taking out like twenty percent a year for expenses. Wow! Uh, so I just the, the enormity of that track. He had a string this is of Michael years. Marcus. Yeah, Michael Marcus had triple digit returns for you know he might have had a quadruple digit. I mean, he had he had really? just astounding. He he did astounding. That, and this was all all commodities. This, this was all futures, and this was in the seventies and early eighties. And this, these that markets were just. But he he knew how to. He just knew how to exploit that type of market, and so he built a fortune in, in that period. But when I interviewed him, he said, uh, "You know, you should speak." And he didn't he didn't want to do the interview because he's a very very private person. He's never done another interview, as far as I know. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, he nobody would have known who he is he's very shy very quiet very no photos uh yeah doesn't give any talks doesn't yeah i don't think you'll find a photo of him uh so that's michael marcus and he agreed reluctantly and only through the intervention of a mutual friend to do the interview and i flew out to malibu to interview him spent a day spent two days at his house and the day we did the full interviews all over the you know on the beach and walking and sitting and whatever are you recording it are you taking notes yeah it's a recording it yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah you know oh everything the rec- i had two recorders i didn't take any chances uh and uh, anyway, at the end of dinner, which cooked by his, you know, his his in-house chef, and uh-huh. and uh, he puts pulls push, pushes back the chair, and he says, you know, you know, this wasn't half bad. This was kind of a cathartic experience. I, you know, I kind of find it found it much <laughs> that, that strong praise from yeah, him. Yeah. not half bad. Oh, yeah, really? No. That, that's terrific. <laughs> so uh, so but um, he, he was the one who said, then you who, you know, you should interview, you should interview Sakota because Sakota is the best trader I know. Really? So this is a guy coming that from, turns coming from a rock star. He turns he around. He does Sakota. So, so I know Sakota's the real thing because I know this guy. I worked at Commodities Corp. I know he's real. Right. I know he did this amazing thing. And and Michael Marcus. Not only that, he Michael Marcus hired Covener, and was you know Covener uh, worked with, with you know that was uh, that was uh, Marcus's protege. Uh, Covener had his own style. And, and now which Covener is this? Bruce Covener, Bruce Covener Caxton. Yep. You know, again, mm-hmm. one of the greatest traders of, of modern times. He, you know, he can that, that, and and so just to give you an idea, so so Mark, so somebody like Marcus is telling you about the best trader he knows, uh, you know, you, that means something. That's real. That's real. So, and, so and what, I did, yeah. And what I was met, it like with Sakota? 
Oh, Sakota is a very odd character. <laughs> yeah, very, very kind of galactic. If you could use that as sure. a to, to, to describe colorful, something. colorful. He'd like to phrase. He had all he had a phrase for everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed that, like I was there, and I said, you know, hey, I, I noticed you don't have a quote machine on your desk. And he said, he said having a quote machine on your desk is like having a slot machine on your desk. You end up feeding at quarters all day. <laughs> so his idea was he picks his trades, he you know, he did it systematically, he put and it in, he it. doesn't want to watch, he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be enticed by the market to do stuff that's outside of what the approach is. So uh, the noise uh in the background is can be compelling and attractive. And he basically yeah. so I'm gonna assume no TVs in his office. I, well no, and then this is back in the this is we did this in the eighties. Well of course they had TVs and stuff, but it was it wasn't as prevalent to have the big screens and all that. How about Marty Schwartz. Schwartz was a uh, yeah. He was very intense. Schwartz is a very intense guy. Uh, Schwartz, by the way, also had this when I and people these people can't keep up records like this. But Schwartz, uh, like a ten year record, which he had audited. This is one of the times he was he was very proudly showed give, me his audited give us record. The numbers because I know it. I want the audience. Yeah. Okay. It, it is nobody's going to believe this. It's twenty five percent a year. Twenty five percent a month. A month for ten yeah, years. Ten years. Not 25% 20, a year. No, 25%, 25% per, per a month, month for 10 consecutive years. For 10 years. years. Also futures with, or? Uh, stock, only stock index futures. Stock, oh. He just traded stock index futures. And, That's astonishing. And he had only he only had, I think, two or three losing months in the entire period. And I think his worst losing month was like a 3% loss. And he went out and it was two. And he went out of his way to tell me that those were the months his kids were born. So he, he had distractions. He was distracted. All right, yeah, that's fair yeah. enough. That th- those are some astonishing numbers. And and let's do uh, Stanley Druckenmiller. Yeah. So you know Stanley Druckenmiller again, one of the incredible traders of all time. I I think people don't know how great he he was. I mean, he, first of all, he ran his own Duquesne fund for close to forty years and. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably average around thirty percent compounded, trading billions of dollars. Uh, uh, people also pro- a lot, unless they read my book, would not necessarily know that Druckenmiller ran the Soros's Quantum Fund for a long period uh, when Soros was in Eastern Europe, kind of doing other stuff that he was interested in doing. And so, uh, really, an extraordinary trader. So, if people want to find out more information about either yourself or Funseeder or Market Wizards, where's the best okay, place so, for them to go? Okay, uh, so funseeder.com, you know, mm-hmm. just Funseeder is like one word and what it sounds like. And I have my own site, which I didn't do anything with, but, you know, if you want to get the books or any other links to any stuff, uh, jackschwager.com. Jack, thank you so much for being so, hey, Barry, so generous with your, yeah, your, thank you. your time. We've been speaking with Jack Schwager, author of Market Wizards. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, be sure to check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jack. Thank you so much for doing this. You're, you're one of our few repeat guests. And I know I've said this before, but I really have to reiterate this show came about because of because of market wizards it came about because i said that looks like so much fun (laughs) when i first started writing for bloomberg they said hey we have these great facilities it's a playground what would you like to do and my answer was i want to find intelligent accomplished people both from in investing and and outside and sit them down and have a market wizards like conversation and they were, okay, go do that. 
that that's really yeah. how this came about. So the last time we spoke, I would be I would be remiss if I did not point this out. You reminded me of something fairly hilarious that I had forgotten about, <laughs> which was the Amazon yes. review of Market Wizards from 2003. So I I actually went out and pulled that review today, and um, I, I just have to share this with the audience because it it's so funny. Uh, I'm the market strategist for New York City Investment Bank. Blah blah blah. Someone gave me this book when I first got into the industry a decade ago. So this is written in 03. God, we are getting old. I find myself rereading it every five years. Quote, I highly recommend it to anyone who is involved in the markets. Simply stated, this is the book for anyone who wants to learn about trading or investing. It is simply a must read. What's so utterly compelling about the interviews is how consistent the themes are are that arise from so many different traders. This is true regardless of the markets they work in, commodities, equities, currencies, bonds, or the style they employ, technical, macroeconomic, fundamental, quantitative. The basic concepts revealed by the wizards are these, discipline, capital preservation, risk management, individual responsibility, flexibility, intellectual honesty, and consistency. Now, that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> and, that, and that is, a, and for the amount of words you used, you couldn't capture the book better. I, I mean, that really is what the, what the book had said to me, and, and I completely forgot about that. Yeah, and, 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 and that is, a, and, yeah, the, but the thing is, your review, you know, how Amazon has, uh, if you like a review, you know, this was, was, was helpful. Yeah, and so that review, like, I, I don't know what it was, like, in, you know, 98 out of 99 people found it helpful or something like that. It, it shows up as the, the top uh, reviewed review. <laughs> and and I completely, so it's the top ranked review of Market Wizards yep. if you go to the page. Yep. It'll be, always there. be the first one and nobody's ever going to replace that because. Uh, so well. you reminded me of that and I hadn't, A, I had no idea that was the that case. That's funny. Whether you of, of all yeah. the little, of all yeah. the little ego things to go out and Google yourself or whatever, I just, and by the way, I almost never, <laughs> never write reviews of stuff. Usually it's because something is this is not how it's advertised. This was advertised as a 12-pack, yeah. and only one showed up, or, or whatever it was. And um, and I was moved enough by the book to, to write that review, and then I, I never thought a second. And, uh, and I'm sure it was very helpful. I mean, that because when people go to that, and the first thing they see is your review, it's, it's certainly It's helped. sincere. It's honest. It's yeah. sincere. So so let's talk a little bit about, about some of the other wizards, because- I think people are, are, are genuinely interested. During the broadcast portion, we didn't get to Richard Dennis. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Richard Dennis. All right, Richard Dennis uh, started out uh, as a floor trader. Uh, he started out in the Mid-America Exchange. Uh, of course, we don't have any floors altogether, but <laughs> the Mid-America, for people who are, unless they're old-timers like us, uh, Mid-America Exchange was an exchange for people for Small contract, mini contracts, so people who couldn't afford to trade the regular grain contracts, which weren't that big, really, uh, they would trade the mid-American. That's where he started out, and he started out literally, I think, about two hundred dollars, and uh, uh, you know, eventually got it up to a few thousand. But the, he that 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 the little stake got uh, multiplied ultimately to a couple hundred million dollars. Um, two hundred to a two, couple hundred yeah, million. Yeah, two hundred million plus whatever. I mean, two hundred dollars to two hundred. Oh yeah, two hundred million. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that so, could be the greatest <laughs> compounded return of all that, time. That, yeah, there's uh, there's quite a few. I mean, that would certainly be one of them for sure. Yeah, 
Uh, and and now Dennis ultimately went on to manage money. That didn't work out so well. Uh, he did much better for his own money, and he he started he started blew out. You know, uh, in fact, he got stuck in the the big thing that that hurt Dennis was. And that was also a bit of bad luck, I would say, uh, was the 87 crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, everybody thinks that the 87 crash, of course, it was like the, the immense decline in the stock market. But what also happened in 87 crash was this amazing rally in, in the interest rate markets. Sure. And euro dollars, which nowadays, you think of euro dollars, they'll trade a couple, you know, they go five or 10 points, right? There, there was an overnight move of 250 points. I mean, think about that. That's like in that. That's twenty five hundred dollars per contract, you know. So uh, it, it was like a seven thousand dollar move, roughly. I think it was per contract, and we're talking a guy who's trading like you know thousands of contracts. Uh, so, but that and he couldn't do anything. It was like oh, it, it was instantaneous. It just mm-hmm. like it was a gap. You couldn't do anything. No, no, no room. So for, that uh, that trade, I think, pretty much wiped. You know that 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 killed his his first event or one of his one ventures and other. So, but he never again reached that. Uh, but what uh, was he especially famous for? He was a trend follower, mm-hmm. and uh, part of it, I think, maybe was like he when he operated when the markets were conducive to that. Now, trend following. We can get into this if you want. I mean, there's a reason why trend following works to some extent. Uh, all the time, over time. Uh, there are elements but, of momentum and persistency that exist in all markets because people's mood tend to not flip-flop from day to day. If there's an expansionary period, it has a tendency to that's have- one, but it's more, it's more That's more, it's more fundamental than that is because the things that really drive the big moves mm-hmm. are things that, that last. So it, it's a central bank decides to- Secular trends. To, yeah, they, they decide, well, we're going to weaken the dollar or strengthen the euro, whatever they're going to do. Uh, and they, they're not going to, to just do it for two days or two weeks. At least, they, or or there's a move to say, okay, the, uh, we're going to start lowering interest rates. And usually, when that happens, or raise interest, it makes sense. Once that trend begins, it usually goes on. So trends have a way of persisting. And even if it's something like commodities or uh, whatever, if there's a shortage of metals, it takes years to open new mines and stuff. So these trends can go on for a while. Right. Uh, so that's why it works, but it's gotten much more difficult to exploit because the markets, there's so many people who, who try to do this. When we were starting this early on, or no, I should say we, but the trader side, somebody in the I interviewed, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were the early ones doing this stuff and they were doing trend following techniques. And But now there's so many people doing it that you get a lot, a lot of false breakouts and it's much more difficult to, to make money that way. That, that That's fascinating. So not only was he a big trend follower, but there's a famous story with him with the turtles. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, the, there's a group of traders called the Turtles, uh, which where the name comes from, uh, the, the story is that he was in Singapore and he went, he saw a farm where they were raising turtles, as vat of turtles. But and by the th- tens of thousands. thousands. Then his thought was, gee, wouldn't be be interesting if we could if I could t- raise traders like they're raising turtles here. Sort of like what you're trying to do with well, Which with is what we're trying to Sun Cedar, except we're not trying to train them or anything. We're, you're trying uh, to spot yeah, them. Yeah, and, and, and Dennis and another trader we talked about uh, in intermission, Eckhart, who was his partner, mm-hmm. trained this group of traders called the, the Turtles, and some of them went on to, to do quite well. Uh, and so that's a kind of a famous story. And, and they put an, put ad, an in, ad in the Times, Times and they or the had Wall Street these, Journal, was it? Yeah, uh, oh, no, I think people, actually it was the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. right? The Wall Street Journal, they did it tw- two years, uh, and they picked about 20 people each time. And they, With no previous Wall they Street weren't, They were not looking for tra- – they were looking for people like game inventors. They were looking mm-hmm. for chess players. They were, looking, they were looking for people who kind of had creative and analytical and things, but they didn't want people who actually knew anything about market. They didn't want – they want they don't want to be 
sullied by the wrong right. approach. Yeah, so Renaissance Technology out out in um, East Atawket near Stony Brook, Jim Simons. He doesn't hire Wall Street people. He no, hires, well, that but that's a that's a pure that's a that's a really pure deep, mathematical, yeah, deep quantitative, quantitative really stu- you know really deep quantitative stuff. So people like Simon's, yeah, and and, and Shores, similar, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they basically very highly quantitative approaches. So so those are some of the uh, those are some of the people you mentioned. Druckenmiller, we talked about Marty Schwartz. And any trader in particular you think uh, uh, worth mentioning that yeah. we haven't gotten to? Yeah, the one trader we didn't talk about, who I I just think is a phenomenal phenomenal individual is and and probably in 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 some ways of all the great people that I interviewed, is probably the most amazing. And that would really? be that would be Ed Thorpe. Sure, uh, beat the dealer. Beat the dealer was his first book, and then beat the uh, market. Beat the markets, right? Right. He was out in Stanford, or yeah, Sta- in yeah, he's out in California. Is uh, he still around? He's still around. He's now. When I interviewed him, he think he was like interviewed him in 2012. I think he was uh, 78 or so, or 79. Oh, okay. So he's low low 80s now. This is you know he's a just uh, not. He's a mathematician, PhD mathematician. Mm-hmm. He actually, the way he became a PhD mathematician, which tells you a lot about the man, is he was doing his PhD. And this is a kid who grew up in the Depression, mm-hmm. uh, in a poor school district with very bad education. Taught himself physics mm-hmm. at, at, at a young age. Got ex, you know uh, got accepted into uh, you know top universities in, in California. And mm-hmm. he was getting his PhD in, was working on his thesis and PhD in physics. Decided he didn't, he decided he didn't have enough math knowledge. Started the auditing courses and the graduate uh, math courses. Ended up with a PhD in math. Never wrote his thesis. So he, you know, in, in, in physics. So technically speaking, he's not a PHD in physics. So he never bothered writing the thesis. But wow. some some of the stuff he did, he actually, and he has this amazing track record. Uh, his first fund, nineteen years, um, nineteen years, he only had uh, uh, like two or three losing months in all those nineteen years. One percent loss was the largest loss. Nineteen percent compounded. Uh, but that's the, the, that's that's a track record. He also did stuff like the reason he did so well. He he came up with the Black Sh- uh, a mathematical equivalent formulation of the Black Scholes model about five years before the famous uh, paper that won the Nobel really? Prize. And he didn't publish it because why? Well, asked him why because he was too busy. Yeah, think of it. For five years, he's he may be the world's the only person in the world who knows how to price options <laughs> correctly. That, that's a little bit and and, and where that's why that's where the track money? record was. It comes in from. options. He made it. Every, he he was. He had the first, the first uh, war, you know type option fund. He had the first convertible bond fund. He had the first uh, stat op fund. He came up with all of these things on his own. He and when he was the, before his trading career, then he was doing stuff like uh, he was the first person to uh, with with uh, with an MIT professor uh, Shannon, who was the father of, so father of information theory. They did the first miniature computer. This is back in the '60s. My God, right. you know, we, we had we had IBM uh, IBM mainframes as large as a room to do simple calculations. They 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 created their own little mini uh, miniature computer and did the studies to use Newtonian physics to beat the roulette wheel just to show that it could be done. And they got like a 44 percent edge on the roulette. Um, and and so he did all these amazing things. That, that's fascinating. What, why do you say he's the most interesting character? Well, because he has all that those elements. You know, he he figured out how to beat. You know the casinos at their own game. They they, they change. In fact, they had meetings about what to do about Thorpe. You know about this math professor. Really? Yeah. And and there's a story in. Were in they he- were they thinking about banning him from the casinos? Well, worse than banning. <laughs> Let's put it this way. One of the stories in Hedge Fund Market Wizards tells about, and this is like out of a movie, but his brakes not working. You know, going a downhill on the car. 
on the car and just throwing the car in reverse and and finding out that the car had been, you know, uh, tampered with, you know. Really? Yeah, yeah. So we had the Vegas is such a delightful we place. We had some, isn't it? Uh, so. But anyway, so he had that side of his life, and then he did all these. He was the creator of so many hedge fund strategies. He's the first guy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, any there's all sorts of things. No, I can't even think. He was a Madoff. He he kind of he he knew Madoff. He figured out what Madoff was up to, like a dozen years before. Uh, and cool. he had he investors because investor one of his investors said, "Hey, what do you think of this?" He said, "Give me the trades." And he, you know, he's Fraud. a mathematician. He he, he, he clearly made, not. He random. gave him eighteen reasons why it was why it was. He said, "Get your money out." Really? Yep. That that's fascinating. It's a shame he didn't go public with that. Yeah, I think he. I I think uh, there were. I think I, I might have discussed that in the book, and there were reasons why. You know, he just felt that you know he couldn't get. To, uh, what do you think? And, and of course, that to be fair, you know, actually. Uh, I should know the name. Uh, the fellow who went public, um, uh, Mar- uh, Greek were, name, uh, Marco Pop, uh, uh, Harry Marco Marco Polos, Marco Polos, right? Uh, I mean, he wrote this great paper, which no one believed. With beautifully beautiful analysis, and they they ignored it. I, I thought from Marco Polos's paper, the most compelling thing was if he's doing this buy right strategy. There aren't enough options in the world That's to right. cover yeah. his trades. Not only that, this okay. isn't complicated. He's got to be lying. He's, he's doing trades in markets that had no volume on that day. Let, right. And he's doing what? He's doing tens he's of doing thousands, millions of dollars, right? Yeah. And, and tens of thousands of trades in a market that didn't even have any option no, trades right. in it. It's it's uh, hindsight bias yeah. is always present. And but it's that was obvious, foresight on Marco Polo's part. Yeah, and, and yeah. And Thorpe's the same, part, he was it was foresight. That that's quite that's quite fascinating. So. Let's talk a little bit about technicals, since you've written a book about trend following and market trading and futures. I shouldn't really call it trend following. Yeah, it's not. It's, yeah, it's, it's well, really more uh, technically oriented. The, the book that got me into to this whole thing, <laughs> writing, was was a was an analytical book called The Complete Guide to the Futures Market, 1984, mm-hmm. which was the catalyst for the Market Wizard books, because that book, I told you I had the idea years before, that book did well for an analytical book. I had some publishers say, "Hey, why don't you do? Why don't you do a whole bunch of analytical books?" I said, "No, thank you. I've done that once. This was a lot of work." Yeah. And so I did the Market Wizards, but that book is now getting redone. Uh, I have a co-author, Mark Etzkorn, is doing a great job, doing great legwork, getting it updated. And uh, so that the, the updated version, the new the new version of uh, the Complete Guide to the Market, uh, Complete Guide to the Futures Markets, the Complete Guide to Futures Markets, which is fundamentals, technical options, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera trading. Uh, that comes out uh, this fall sometime. Oh, that's that's yeah. interesting. So, so how did you find your way to technicals? What made you look? Ah, uh, yeah. So I see. So you're looking at somebody who started out as a fundamental analyst. I, I hear this on a regular basis. Yep, Guy and, starts out uh, as a CFA or or a macroeconomist, and then and I because I come, charts. you know, I come from an economic. You know, my what's my education? I'm I'm uh, you know, I've got a degree in economics, so. So uh, you, you're going to be inclined to look for statistical, analytical, you know, that type of analysis uh, approach. Um, but I found that the fundamental analysis was very poorly attuned to trading because mm-hmm. fundamentals don't give you timing. Uh, and it's worse than actually, I say, the only way that fundamentals are useful for timing is in a contrarian way. So in other words, if you have something that's supposed to be bullish for the market, and it doesn't cause the market to go up much, or as much as you think, or cause the market goes down. That might be useful bearish information, but used as the way it's intended, fundamentals do not work for timing because they're just too broad. They're much too broad. Ra- Ralph Akinpora, I think, had the greatest explanation on the the tension between fundamentals and technicals. 
I actually have a quote of his. Fundamentals tell you what to buy. Technicals tell you when. when. Yeah, and that's a good way to do it. And you can use fundamentals of that. You can say, you can say, well, yeah, and if you're a good fundamental analyst, uh, you, you can get say, well, this market should go up over time. I want to look for only buy trade. That's that's a that's a good use of, fun, of fundamentals. And, and the way I got into technicals is because I was a research director and uh, one of my analysts was a technical analyst. I, I didn't do anything. But I noticed that of all the analysts, he was the only one who was doing well, right? Mm. And so I didn't want. I like to think I was a little bit open minded. So I said, Steve, you know, tell me what you do. And he started, you know, and Steve, I, I, Steve, who? Which? Oh, okay. So I should. Yeah, absolutely. Steve Kronowitz. And, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, Steve Kronowitz was a, no, no, he was a very close friend. And un, he unfortunately died just a couple of months ago. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, probably the big, the worst loss I had as a friend in my life. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just a, he was a great person. Um, but Steve was the one who taught me technical analysis. When when you said, "Tell me what you do," how does he answer? Oh, that? so he said, you know, well, he he made me understand why these things work. You know, so I came in with the well, this the how can this stuff work? And they, they appreciate that it works because it reflects everything going in the market. It's reflecting the psychology of what you're seeing. You're seeing fundamentals in the charts. Mm -hmm. It's just you're seeing them through the price action. Right. And that's what the people don't understand. That. People say, oh, uh, it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo and all that. Well, no, because anything that fundamental, people who are moving the markets for fundamentals, you they can't hide what they're doing. It shows up in the Supply price. Supply and demand. It it's shows right up there. in the price. So so that leads to a question I, I, I had written down to ask you. What do you think people misunderstand about technicals? Uh, that, that that's that's a key thing. That, that the technicals aren't some mysterious thing. They are the reflection of all the participants in the market. So they do reflect fundamentals. Another thing, and this is one of the main one of the main things I my the complete guide to the futures market. One of my main points is you don't when you and I go through lots of chart analysis, technical analysis, all that. I say it's not so much interpreting Wendy's patterns, and it's a lot of subjectivity. What's even more important is when things that should work one way based upon the technical analysis don't work. So what I call a sort of a, a failed signal is more important than than a classical signal. T tells you something is happening. Yeah. So if you get a you get a market, hey, this was actually my, I, my favorite example is this is really terrible news and and the stock actually rallied on. That's that right. Place. That's that's a type of thing. And but I'll give you like one example that I that, that personally uh, it was a week or two ago. I, I was long the bonds, and the market was going up, and then one morning it gaps into highs. I'm I'm, I'm doing great, right? And it's sort of, and then during the day it just goes down, starts going down and down and down and down. And I say, hey, that is just not the right type of action. And I had stops in, so if it got close to unchanged, I'd be out. I got out, and yeah, now with Brexit, it's going back up again. But it had a good size reaction, and that's that's a good example of you had a gap breakout. It should have been strong. And it failed. It came back into you know. So that's again. So to me, that's a that's a much better signal than the breakout. So today we're sitting in this room with one, two, three, four, five, like ten monitors and uh, you know five computers hooked up to a network of of industrial military grade computing technology. What has all of this computing horsepower and and all of this charting software done to the world of technicals. And I, I say that with with the admission that I came up with guys who would do charts by hand every night. And and this traders, there are traders who I interviewed who still insist on, you know, it's still, still insist on doing or met, you know, that was still insist on doing it by hand. Uh, and as far as I go, for, for example, I don't use any of the indicators. <laughs> I just look at charts. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm more comfortable with that. 
and, I, and my attitude is, I think all these indicators are just derivatives of price anyway. Right. Yeah. So, and my moving anal- averages and oscillators and yeah, all those. Yeah, different- they're just the, they're just formulations of price. So you're really not getting anything more than price. You're just getting it in a different type of picture. And my analogy for that is. It's, you know, you take something like sunglasses, and some people are like uh, an amber color better, something like, you know, a bluish color better. You know, it's a personal taste. And and some people will work, one color will work better for some people, one color will work better for other people. It's a matter of personal taste. So in my case, I just like the plain charts, plain vanilla, clear. But, so you're, but, not, you're not an Elliott Wave guy, you're not a DeMarc person, I'm not you're not a GAN yeah. analyst or Fibonacci. Or- my, my approach, and again, I'm not a great trader, but my approach basically is just, Look at the charts. Form an opinion. Could be trend. Could be trend following type trade. Could be counter trend. But either way, it's got some sort of reason off the charts why I'm looking at it that way. And in every case, I'm putting in a stop along with the entry. So, so does all. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Does all this charting software that's out there, uh, so anyone could have access to an immense amount of technical analysis that really wasn't all that available. When, oh, absolutely. When I was starting. Yeah. What has that done to the world of trading, if anything? Uh, I don't know. I think for some people, they they learn to use some of those uh, indicators in certain ways that work for them. And so it gives them, there's like I said, much more variety. And insofar as people need to find a way that works for them, it makes it possible, for, just multiplies tremendously the amount of ways people can trade the market. So I guess in that way, it's probably useful. Uh, but no matter back then and now, there's only going to be a sm- you know smaller number of people that will excel in the markets. All right, so I know I only have you for a uh, a few minutes longer. Let me get to my list of, of favorite questions and, and start plowing into this. Let, let's jump right in with the mentors. So you mentioned- Yeah, uh, my, I, my mentors. Yeah, so the one mentor, I really would say I have one mentor, and that mm-hmm. mentor would be would be Steve Kronowitz because he's, mm-hmm. he's a fellow who taught me classical chart analysis. And, uh, and what, I- yeah, and I didn't read. Actually, I never even read. I never. I had to admit this, but I never read the classical chart books and everything else. No McGee and and yeah, which was not a. I just ended up not. I because I, I learned. I learned the the basic things from from Steve, and then for probably the markets, I find everybody. If you, you look at charts, you get your own biases, certain things, and mm. uh, I, I I'll mention another fellow who's a close friend, Peter Brandt. Oh um, sure, I know yeah. Pete. Absolutely, and not that he's a friend. By the way, Pete is uh, pretty I mean, well known a, on Twitter, and tr- I know a lot got, of traders who follow him. Yeah, so uh, uh, Pete, not that I, not that he's, I meant to say, not that he's a mentor, um, because but but he is. He and I are very similar in the type of approach. I mean, we may not look at the chart and get the same opinion sometimes. Yes, sometimes no. That's not where we're similar. But it's the same type of thought that you know you're only going to win a certain percentage of your time. You always know your risk point. It's much more important to to keep your losses controlled and uh, and be unemotional and just use just use the you know, information. Don't try to make the markets work. You know, do what you want them to do. Just follow what the markets are telling you. And it's a lot of similar philosophy. So, not. Not necessarily a mentor question, but what other of all the traders and investors we mentioned, who who influenced you philosophically? Well, it sounds like Brant and you were very simpatico, but in the formative days. But yeah, in the formative days, um, well, I, I would say of all, there are a number of people who made the same point, but as a line that sticks in my mind, uh, maybe the single most important sentence that anybody uttered, you know. Okay, that's that's a that's something to get people get my attention, attention though, right? Yeah. Right? Is Bruce Covenant's line is always know where you're going to get out before you get in. 
The you know I started on a desk with a uh, the head of the desk was a marine jungle combat instructor. So this is a big badass guy, and <laughs> you know he had the same exact line, but he would always couch it in marine terms. He said, "Before you take, you're going to take a village, you're going to take a house, you're going to take a hill. You have to know we're getting in, we're getting out, but we have to know." What's our exit? And if that exit is blocked, what's our plan B and what's our plan C? Right. You always have to, if you want to get out alive, you have to know what your exit strategy is and what the alternatives are if something mucks up that, that Perfect first analogy. Strategy. Yeah. And that sounds very much like what, what Kovner right, right, uh, right. said. Only only that's got a little more mud and, and, and teeth in it. Well, the, the one thing I would add to that is also that the key about it is that what what he's really saying there is do it before you get in because that's when you still have objectivity. You're, you're objective. You're, objective, you're not right, emotional. Right. Don't do you it don't in, have bullets right. with or, or your Or your analogy works. Don't do it in the heat of combat. Do, right. it, do it when you're planning that, it. Right. That's exactly right. right. That, that's always, uh, my, my analogy is, you know that, that card in the seat back in front of you? While you're on the ground, that's when you want to read it and see where, where the where, exits are. Right. Where are the exits? Where's the, uh, the flotation devices? Not, oh, look, the wing is on fire, <laughs> which was on the news today. At 30,000 feet, probably not the time where you're going to have the presence of mind to learn anything right. from that. So so let's talk a little bit about books. We've been talking about your books. Yep. What other books have you read? Fiction, nonfiction, investing, sure. non... What other books have you found to be, hey, people should read this? Okay. Uh, well, I, I'd recommend as, an, as authors, um, for, for if, if no, even for entertaining purposes, uh, you know, anything Michael Lewis has written is just superb. 100%. Uh, I think Michael Lewis is one of the great authors of all time. Uh, I mean, just tremendously entertaining. And he, but also, a brilliant talent. You take a book like The Big Short, and I can appreciate this because I wrote in Hedgeford Market Wizards, I had to cover some of the same territory. Uh, to take the complexity of what went on there and to make it entertaining and understandable is right. a talent. Uh, so anything and he Lewis, he yeah. consistently finds these angles. Yep. To to bring and these personalities to tell the story, just just wonderful. I will admit I have never read one of his books. I've read all of his books except one is the right. accurate way to say it. And I'm saving the Blind Side for my next vacation. Oh great! Because right, I yeah, always yeah. read his books and I. I will Always. plow through them in a day. Yeah, they're the great. big short a day. Uh, they're great. Uh, Flash boys a day. Moneyball a day. You sit on the beach. It's like wow. Yeah, it was. It's, it's so it's it's entertaining. You learn stuff. It's insightful. It's creative. Yeah. So uh, and uh, an author I would put for, you know very high up and 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 whose influence I think will stay for a long time is Nassim Taleb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I guess the Black Swan is probably his most famous book, personally. Fooled by Randomness, I Fooled think, by is randomness probably more, is, more famous and more useful. Well, quite bluntly. personally, Fooled by Randomness, and, and Talib would not agree with me, but but because uh, I think he thinks Black Swan is his best book, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think Fooled by Randomness is not just because it was the first of those type of books, but it really got all the key lessons, and it it, it so much captured how... A lot of what people think is skill is really luck and and confuse the two and and also not appreciate the uh, the fact that there are the, the tail nature of events in the markets as uh, and uh, that and and so all those themes really come out very well. It's a shame that he's not going to hear this interview because I tweeted I retweeted something somebody else had written, and he was so angry at that person that not only did he <laughs> not only did he block them on Twitter. But he blocked me. Oh, I know who it was. It was Noah Smith, who writes for who's oh, a fan, 
Fabulous writer. Let me yeah. So let me give a caduce here. Noah Smith, who's a blog, economist, blogger, and Talib, I know, hates him. Uh, <laughs> but Noah Smith is for a guy who writes short, succinct articles uh, on on economics that are pertinent. Uh, they're they're just extremely well explained. He's not he's not a liberal. He's not a conservative. He's that's what I love Data about him. Base guy. He's so just, let me let me share a little inside baseball with you about Noah Smith. So I'm the guy who brought Noah Smith to Bloomberg View. How how do I know Noah Smith? So he comes, listen to his background. It's really fascinating. I think he comes out of Berkeley with a degree in physics. Then he goes to Michigan, University of Michigan, to, to get his PhD in economics. Then he's teaching at my alma mater, State University of New York at oh. Stony Brook, in the economics department. I've spoken to his class a couple of times. And when Bloomberg View was coming together... Um, I every now and then would say, hey, are you looking for a guy to cover this or that? And, yeah, send the name. So a, a number of people I referred them to ultimately became writers here. I always loved, for the same reasons yeah. that you do, Noah Smith's work. He's a fascinating guy. Then add to that, sm just absolutely brilliant, smart as a whip, add to that, P.S. he speaks fluent Japanese and spends summers in Japan every year for the past decade. Uh, this is really an interesting, unusual, talk about eclectic, yeah. physics, economics, Japanese. But he write, And he writes very clearly. Very, right, very, Ve very understandable, yeah. takes really complex issues and makes it readily accessible. Uh, from what I followed with him and Taleb, he used the concept of a black swan, apparently in a way that Taleb was not happy about. Now, last I checked, Taleb doesn't have the trademark <laughs> on a black swan, meaning we th were expecting this and we got something else. Oh, and by the way, it was a tail event. It was a low probability but significant outcome event. Uh, I think the two of them use the phrase slightly differently. A and look, I have no beef with, with Taleb, and I love Noah yeah. Smith's work. He went so postal at him. Taleb went so postal at Smith for, for writing this. He was so angry at me merely for retweeting it. Wow, yeah. He goes, I, I just can't continent uh, you you retweeting this and I have to block you. So And we, we should tell people to, uh, for, for Noah Smith, is his his blog is called No No Opinion. Noah Opinion, no right. Opinion. Which is the word Noah and, and opinion, opinion combined, yeah. sort of a uh, I right. forgot the word uh, uh, of what, what, what that's called when you when you combine uh it's on the tip of my tongue. Um I I don't have an issue with Taleb. I, I find his, his work to be Fascinating. I don't think he what he does on Twitter is a good look. Like yeah, well, crushing it, you know, getting into fights with people all the time. But I understand it. Listen, we all have a certain amount of road rage that's well, tough Taleb, to keep Taleb, camped Taleb down. Taleb doesn't suffer. Another fools. fascinating does, does, guy doesn't suffer fools easily. But no, but, but, is but no exactly, fool. exactly. That's the thing. But I think sometimes maybe he may confuse. You know. Uh, who the fools are, you know. So uh, yeah, no, that that's exactly. Listen, if when. Over the weekend following Brexit, I, I, I saw a data point that said, um, you know, you look how, at how the older folks voted. They voted overwhelmingly to leave. And you look at how the younger folks vote, and they voted overwhelmingly to stay. And I, I saw, I tweeted this data point out uh, that had come from one of the UK papers. And, um, and someone tweeted, tweeted the line with, uh, there's a, a British soldier saluting 
in a in a huge cemetery, and they they tweeted, "Yeah, what did the old folks ever do for the UK?" And I had to call the guy out. Yeah. I'm like, "Well, if you're 80 and you voted for Brexit, that's fantastic. You were three years old when World War II started. So please <laughs> right. do some basic yeah. math and stop lying about this. You already won." But you don't have right. to. You could stop lying now that you won. You don't have to. And I, I just, I felt myself wanting to go full Talib, uh, full yeah, Nasim yeah, on it, yeah, the guy. Yeah. But there's a difference between calling out someone who's intellectually dishonest, someone who's a liar, right. not suffering fools gladly. Yeah, and I was very surprised when I saw there was some, you know, comments that he was like, I didn't really read the whole thing. But, Nasim, come but, back on on Blackberry and and Noah. Yeah. We we miss you. We love you. And and be less of a. Uh... By the way, he's another guy. That I would love to have on the show, oh, he but I'm afraid he'll just chew the furniture. He'll, he's, <laughs> you know, I, I've met him. I've had lunch with him. Yeah. I think he's an interesting guy. Right. Certainly smart enough. I, I, maybe it's a generational thing. Oh. I got enough of a foot in the under fifty. Well, camp. ask, ask him, ask him. You know, I, like, I, I'd ask him on Twitter, but I'm, but yeah. I'm blocked. But all right, let let's not um, have this digression. Yeah. Uh, let let's go back to uh, what other books besides Michael Lewis and Nassim Taleb. Oh, okay, I just, what other I, books do you find? Well, I, I mentioned Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, classic, old time right? classic. Beat the uh, dealer, beat the right. market. And, and then by one, my uh, yeah, my favorite book, my personal favorite book of all time, uh, one of the only books I've read several times, is a book called Endurance about Shackleton's. Uh, uh, endurance. Endurance. Uh, uh-huh. So his original book, there have been several books about Shackleton uh, uh-huh. that the Antarctic event. There's a movie out now. Yeah, there's a movies and stuff. I think, well, there have been. Uh, but that first book, I think it was by Lansing, uh, which was written, I, if I remember. Really? I, remember, I think it was written in 55, but it is the most compelling wow. story. Uh, it is just... It is so tell, quickly tell the Shackleton so story. So the Shackleton for- story, uh, is, uh, an Antarctic expedition, bottom line, gets stuck, trapped in the ice, uh, in, in middle life, there's no, they just have nothing. And, uh, uh, they, there's they, no by, all, by all means, they should have been, yeah, they, 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 they hunted to some extent, but they, they, they couldn't be rescued for, for years. Uh, but I almost don't want to say what happened or what happened right. to a survival. But it's I, worth reading. Cause, cause it's a, cause you don't know, if you don't know, it makes it much more interesting. But as a tale of survival, it is, if it's not the best tale of survival ever written, it's um and and you you know the human endurance. I mean the, the endurance endurance. Is the, title the, of the, book. the the the, the, the book shackle. is well titled and it, there are so many images in there and so many so many. It's the story itself is so compelling. Uh, it's just a great read. Uh, I'll put that on my list. That sounds fascinating. Um, so since you joined the finance industry, what what are some of the most significant changes that you've you've witnessed? Well, we talked about the floors disappearing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, tremendous the. the Computers. I mean, the whole. Why well, I started out in the day where we we you know most people we didn't even have quote machine you know right. on desks. We had these giant wall boards with the click, and that was technology. The wall boards, which you know clicked every time the price changed. Uh, technology has been a tremendous change, and that's that's brought into uh, into existence a whole bunch of uh, the approaches that would have been impossible because of the calculations involved. They're just too intense to do any other way. Uh, so you have a, so it's changed the nature of trading in that sense. Um, I guess there's a lot more strategies. I mean, it used to be much simpler. You, you, you got 58 different hedge fund strategies now, all sorts of arcane stuff. So uh, those are some of the changes, but human nature doesn't change, and that's where the similarity of markets remains. So, so given the technology changes in the past, what, what do you think might be some of the next major shifts we see going forward? 
See, I'm not a predictor. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, that, I, that's I, the right answer. Yeah, uh, I, I, I always like that answer. If nobody, if you don't know, you're better off saying yeah. that than than guessing. And so few yeah. people in this industry are willing to say. Yeah, I never, I, I never answer a question. Like that. Yeah, I don't think I know the answer to. I, I but make... by the way, I've done enough TV in my career that when someone asks you a question and you say, "I, I don't know," it throws them off. They have no idea. What yeah, to do. yeah, yeah. I've done that a couple. So where's the Dow going to be? To right, you? right, right, right. I, I don't know. They look at you like you have two heads. Come on, give me a number. Seven? Uh, you know, I've it, done an interview. I remember doing an interview in Australia, and I said, look, you know, I, I can talk about trading, I can talk about this, I can talk about that. But he said, don't ask me. I'm not, you know, don't ask me. Where, I'm not first, Nostradamus. And, and, and I said, I'm not following Australia. The first question, what do you think the Australian stock market's going to do? You know, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, and that's what, basically what I answered. So um, so let's get to our, our two our two, uh, uh, our two favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. So uh, uh, a millennial or, or recent graduate comes to you and says, I'm thinking of getting into finance as a career. What sort of advice would you give them? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> are you talking about trading or talking just finance? Anything in, anything in... Uh... Well, uh, first make sure it's what you really want to do. I mean, it's not, you're not just looking to do it for the money. Um you know, I guess in terms of finding a job, probably the only effective way to do it these days is networking. Mm-hmm. Um, try what to about write, the career try, itself? The the career has to be geared to something that – well, you want to go for your strength. So uh, if you can write, you want to try to find an angle that emphasizes writing. If you can do analytics, you know, do that. If you're good in computers, you know. So take advantage of your strength and try to break into the career mm-hmm. on your strong point, basically. Focus on your strong point. And and our last question, um, what is it that you know about investing today you wish you knew 30-plus years ago when you started? Well, uh, that uh, one of the themes of Market Wizards is that the risk of management is more important than, than trading strategy. Uh, oh, you know what? Uh, and this is one I've made a mistake I made, made made more recently, and I wish I learned much quicker. And even if I learned it, I kind of repeated it. Hopefully, I'll never repeat it again. But um, be and maybe my my biggest flaw as a trader is be careful of uh, getting too complacent when you're doing very well. Uh, so all my you know for for years and years, every time I've had any significant drawdowns, it's always been after I've done extremely well. You yep, know? no, that I, I've witnessed that and experienced it. So personally. I'm very I'm actually I'm actually superb at not at coming in with a small stake and either just. Controlling the loss to a tiny amount, or not losing anything, and just getting ahead, and never being behind. I'm really, really good at that. Um, but I'm really <laughs> been terrible about once I get ahead, not a lot, you know, then then giving back a chunk, which I would. But but because I do things or take more risk or do things differently than I would have done when I was being so super cautious. So when but, I when I start out in the beginning, I'm every time I and I don't trade all the time, so I, it depends on how busy I am, but every time I start trading, I start very small and very cautious and that's when I'm best. So it's so funny you say that. When I, I when I began as a trader, I ended up creating a number of rules, one of which was never let a profit turn into a loss, but then mid 90s, just like you talked, what happens when you have these giant winners? So that's where the 25% rule came from, which is when you're up X percent, and X has to be substantial, if you give back 25%, that's it. Cut cut yeah. your losses and, and I think it's the, I think that's a good loss. And, and yeah, there, yeah. there's something along there. So in other words, you, you're up 100, up now I'm only up 75, that's it, I'm, yeah. I'm out. Otherwise, we've all seen those round trips yeah. too many times. Yeah. 
Jack, this has hey, been absolutely fascinating. Always thank have you so fun much. With you, Barry. Uh, yeah. Thank you so That's much great. for doing this. Uh, for those of you who are still with us almost two hours later, um, we've been speaking with Jack Schwager. He is the author of uh, The Complete Guide to Futures Trading. Look for the new edition coming out in the fall. Market Wizards, Stock Market Wizards, New Market Wizards, and Hedge Fund Wizards, as well as the Little Book of Market right, Wizards. Right, well, you got them all Did I, I, got, I, I nailed them all. Uh, and be sure and check out Jack's new uh, entrepreneurial venture, uh, FunCeder.com, where you could see how they are trying to find the new, uh, the new emerging managers. Perhaps if you're an active trader, you might want to register at FunCeder and see if uh, eventually they find you as, as one of the outstanding performers. If you have enjoyed this conversation... Be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and see any of the other 97 or so such chats that we've had. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. Are you on Twitter these days, Jack? Yeah, I, I am. Jack Schwager, yeah. Ja at, at Jack Schwager. Um, I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my booker, Charlie Vollmer, our producer, and Reggie, our recording engineer. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.